This FT Strategies podcast is brought to you in association with the Google News Initiative, who work side by side with publishers and journalists to help strengthen their work in the digital age. It's often said the news media and publishing are under threat. Whether it's drops in advertising revenue forcing business models to evolve quickly or shifts in the way consumers consume, organizations are constantly having to pivot and do so at pace in order to survive. In this series, we look at the defining moments faced by leaders in news publishing and unpack the strategies adopted and capabilities built in order to continue delivering and sustaining journalism and news in the digital age. We'll explore how they're not just surviving, but in some cases, thriving. I'm Alajon, and this is The Turning Point. This week, we welcome one of Austria's best-selling quality newspapers, Der Standard, who participated in our Data and Insights Launchpad program. During the program, Der Standard focused on building a data-driven framework to understand, measure, and increase community engagement. I'm delighted to welcome Florian Stambuller, Head of Product and Deputy Director of Digital Publishing from Der Standard. Florian, welcome. It's very good to be here. Thanks for having me, Alex. Tell us a little bit about the standard and some of the challenges perhaps it has faced over the last few years. If you can contextualize the sort of the recent history, that would be great. The standard is Austria's largest national quality newspaper and has been around for about 30 years. It was founded by a legendary Austrian journalist, Oskar Bronner, and his family basically still owns the company. Currently, we are around 500 people and of whom about 190 are journalists. We have a daily circulation of about 90,000 and about three and a half million people read us online every month. Yeah, so recent challenges. Well, like most other news media, the pandemic has certainly been dominating how we operate as a company. Overall, it probably has amplified negative and positive trends that already existed before COVID hit. And that includes eroding trust in journalism in general, while at the same time, quality news maybe has profited because people were looking for reliable information. A large part of our revenue still originates from our print products. And over the past three years, we saw an acceleration of declining print revenues and at the same time, an increase in digital revenue. I finally, like probably most organizations we had to deal with, how do we become a partly remotely operated organization in a very short period of time? So it's been difficult times. It's been uh, exciting times with lots of opportunities over the last couple of years, certainly for us. So a lot of challenges there. I guess a, a lot of changes over the last few years, similar to many of the organizations um, we, we, we speak with on this podcast and that we work with as well. I'd love to, I guess, dive into some of them. You mentioned the change towards more digital revenue. Can you unpack that a bit and explain what changes specifically and what does your new revenue makeup look like? So some time ago, we looked into whether we should raise a paywall like so many other publishers did over the past couple of years. And we looked into, into that topic deeply and then decided, no, we don't want to do that because our journalistic mission evolves around many, many people having access to our journalism and can read it online for free. So we decided um, to pursue another avenue. And basically what we have built is something very similar to The Guardian. We have a contribution model and we have different digital products that people can subscribe to. 
So just about the time COVID hit, we were about to test our contribution model. We had a plan to slowly build it up and test it and bring more and more users into that. And then suddenly we had to compress basically a timeline that was running over more or less the next 12 months into the next four or five weeks because suddenly all of our ad revenue collapsed because everything was so uncertain. You remember back then in, in March of 2019. And we had to look for different ways of basically getting revenue and to diversify more quickly than we had thought. And that's been doing okay during COVID. There was a lot of interest in journalism, luckily. And also there was an understanding with our readers that quality journalism needs support from our readers and that they can read us for free. But there's also maybe a part of doing this on fair terms. So many readers decided to, to contribute and do this on a regular basis. So that's, that's something that on the positive side and on the negative side, print revenue has been declining for a long time now, and that has accelerated over the past couple of years and continues to do so. So we are basically on a race, declining revenue against increasing revenue on the other hand. But it's been challenging because digital revenue tends to be less on a subscriber to subscriber base compared to print revenue, obviously. And the pace of that change that you articulated there, I guess, talking literally in weeks as opposed to years or, or, or even months, I guess I'd love to understand some of the kind of key decisions that were taken in terms of, okay, what are the capabilities gaps that we might have in our organization? What do we need to be focusing on a lot more now compared to, say, the operating model of five years or five months beforehand? Yeah, absolutely. So basically what happened was that this small project that we were basically running as an experiment became very much the center of our organization and the resources that we had at our disposal were poured into that project and to get it up and running as quickly as possible. So with speeds, there is also always opportunity to learn, but also opportunity to get something not correctly because everything is just moving so quickly. And we definitely had a very steep learning curve during that couple of weeks and months, 2019. I think it has mellowed out a little bit. It's become more stable. Contributions remain an important part for our digital revenue. But at the same time, the bedrock of our digital revenue remains our ad-free subscription that we have launched a year earlier. And this coincided with uh, the, the start of GDPR. GDPR came in, into effect in May 2018. And we needed to find a way of being GDPR compliant, but also remain competitive in terms of what kind of ad products can be offered to our ads advertising clients. So we created this model where we would give users a choice. They could either consent to us processing their data or they could use the website completely tracking and ad-free by buying uh, what we call a poor subscription. And at that point of time, that was basically running against the market dynamics and many publishers in Austria, they choose to do it differently. And in Germany, they basically... We're looking at us kind of strangely why we would pursue this strange solution. But it turned out that this was actually something that made GDPR work for many, many publishers. And this poor model 
then went on to be copied by many of the largest publishers, certainly in the Dach region. Florian, could you expand upon the, the poor model, as you put it? It'd be good to understand exactly what you mean. Yeah, so what it basically does is um, GDPR requires you to to offer users the choice of whether they want to have their data processed or not. But it also retains the the opportunity for publishers to charge for an ad-free experience, for a non-tracking experience. So and that's basically what we what we used when we looked at the, the legal texts. We saw an opportunity to, on the one hand, be fair to users and to offer this choice and at the same time retain our advertising model, but also maybe build a subscription business. That wasn't really clear at that point of time, how successful this might become. And it turned out it became very, very successful. So most of our digital subscriptions today are subscriptions to the ad-free experience of the website. That transition between, um, and and very commonly in the industry, as you'll know, and our audience will know, people view them as, I guess, binary routes in a way. I don't think over 400 organizations that FT Strategies has worked with have we found a, a great example of a single revenue stream business. So that transition from one model to another or, or how to ease the transition so that there is a kind of mutual dependency is fundamental to surviving and thriving in, in the digital age. I guess very, very interesting. I'd like to link it back to, I guess, some of the fundamentals of, of the work that were done together in partnership through the, the Google News Initiative program, Data and Insights Launchpad. What are you doing now with the work that was done? And I gave a little taste to that work in the introduction. What you said was exactly true for us. So we are looking ahead and if the basic assumption still remains true that we are not going to have a paywall anytime soon and that we want to reach as many people as possible with our journalism. What do we then need to do to have additional revenue streams? Uh, what can we offer to our users besides the journalism that we publish? How can we differentiate? How can we be different from other uh, news outlets? And we decided that we are building on a strong foundation if we build on our community. And to give you a little bit of background to that, that was probably one of the, the biggest decisions, strategic decisions that we made in the past. That was already a long time ago. In 1999, the first user comment went online on our website, and that was a complete novelty back then. While most publishers had made it to the internet by that time, nobody was seriously thinking about having readers discussing articles on their websites. News was very much a one-way communication and largely remained so for traditional media till this day. But this head start really allowed us to build one of the largest online communities of any publisher worldwide. And today we publish on average more than 40,000 comments a day. Readers, users, commenters have been at the core of that journalistic mission, really. So just to finish that sentence, so we decided, okay, when we have this, this strong community, what do we need to do to build on that to offer something else than just our journalism? It's such an interesting topic, community. And I think many publishers in seeking to, I guess, improve engagement with their audience or, or loyalty look to the community kind of paradigm. It speaks also to the, the difference to an, to an extent between a subscription offer and a membership offer. Perhaps there's a, a kind of 
the element that's missing in subscriptions is often how the community can interact with each, with each other. It's not always the case, but it tends to be the case. I guess, very briefly, what, what specifically do your community benefit from Dash Standard? It's not really rocket science what we do on our website, but over time, there's been this community accumulating on our website and they are maybe distinctive from other community platforms. They are certainly distinctive from like large social media platforms. And in Austria, we hear from many of our readers that they are coming to us sometimes not even to read our journalism, but they want to read what the community thinks about a certain topic or maybe the news of that day. Yeah, that's a that's a strong distinction that we have that differentiates us from other other publishers in Austria, certainly. And through the program, I think understanding what drove value for that community was one of the key focuses, right? I'd love if you could, uh, I guess, unpack a little bit of the work that was done through the work that the standard team led with FG Strategies, but also, again, what you've taken on from that. Yeah, absolutely. So while we had this community for a long time, and about 35% of our traffic on-site is generated from users reading and writing comments, so that's a, that's a huge part of our business too. 35%? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is a significant proportion of the traffic. So that's people coming to the site directly just to comment or reading and then commenting. Absolutely. And we had that for a while, but we, and we had some basic understanding of how these users engage on our website. We had very little understanding about what the life cycle they go through, how they become active commenters in the first place, what keeps them going and what makes them drop off. So these three months that have been quite transformational for us that we spent with FT Strategies and the program that we did together. And it really has changed the perspective that we take on how are we going to develop our community platform further in the future. I'm happy to talk a, li a little bit about what we actually did during that program. It was really interesting to see over the past three years how users suddenly became active commenters. And some had already been readers for years when they suddenly started engaging in the discourse on a daily or weekly basis. Others had not been readers of our journalism or maybe had not been interested in news at all, who also became very active, especially around COVID-related news. So that's happened over the last couple of years. That's one thing that we have to keep in mind. And the other thing that is really important for us to understand is that at the beginning of this year, we started a new product management team And with it, we had the expectation to work a lot more user-focused and really dive into like user behavior and understanding users more thoroughly. And from these insights, think about problems that we want to solve for our readers. How did you segment them and, and were you able to segment them? We had, a, we had a basic understanding of our users and we also had a basic understanding that some of our users were more active than others. And those active users that they are contributing more, they're reading more, they're writing more comments, but we never really put them into specific segments. That's when the FT project happened and really got the, got the dice rolling on that. We, during the program, we created a new category for our users, super users. They're probably the most significant outcome of our data and insights program because yeah, we never really had a definition for that segment before. And now we are tracking it. We are working with, with those users on a really regular basis. 
It's something that the FTS team suggested. It's a very simple and elegant way of doing it. And we define super users as users who have about 100 interactions per week, either commenting or rating comments. And if you take these segments, then you find out a couple of very interesting things for us. For example, those super users write about 10% of all our comments on the site. They spend about five times as much time on than the average users on the site. And they even spend twice as much time as an average commenter. These users spend several hours every day on our website. And very often they have been around for a long time and have been readers for a long time. I think any organization would kill for users who spend seven hours a day on their, on their platform. Um, I guess, so what we're talking about here, I guess, is the power of user engagement. I'd love if you could explain, firstly, why super users are so important to the business. Um, secondly, does it translate to, I guess, business value? So are they converting or are they largely represented in your paying reader base? Yes. So the... the the, the easy answer is yes. More engaged users are more likely to become subscribers. But that's not all that we are looking for. Because if they're engaged, they're writing interesting stuff, they're creating content that is relevant for other users as well. Those users spend more time on our website, which leads more for maybe more ad impressions as well. That's also interesting for us. But also from a journalistic mission point of view, we have this in our in our mission that we want to be the largest platform for public discourse, certainly in the German-speaking area. So what we are looking for is a diverse group of users who are representing a diverse spectrum of opinions and engage in healthy public discourse. So, and this challenges us in, in various ways because so far, what we learned also through the project was Predominantly, the most active commenters are male and not female. And we also learned that through other research that we did, that female commenters actually, they have a harder time on our platform because as soon as you publish something for the very first time, it can really go in two directions. Through the FT project, we learned that if you comment, the likelihood you're 50% more likely to spend more time on the website than if you hadn't commented before. So, but that is only true if your comment was not perceived negatively or didn't garner any, any negative reactions to it. And this becomes especially important for our female commenters, because if they comment for the very first time and they get some negative feedback, either because their comment was rated negatively or they got some not so nice replies to their comment, it's very unlikely that they're ever going to comment again. So we are looking into ways and we started a program of how can we identify female commenters and how can we have more attention on them, especially around th them writing their first comments. So we can create an at atmosphere where they are, they are safe, maybe. They are more likely to comment and keep commenting. That's very interesting. So I'd love to understand a little bit more around how you are incentivizing interaction in that sense. So we know engagement is a is a great thing for publishers and, and the FT and the work that we do through FTS often establishes that correlation between engagement and I guess more commercial metrics like retention of subscribers or or acquisition. 
and lifetime value. But it would be good to understand what tactics their standard and your team are adopting to incentivize that, that engagement habit, in this instance, commenting and, and communication with their peers. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. So something that we also learned through the program was that we are already doing something quite right. It is like, how can we slowly get people to become more engaged? And writing a comment is very much at the end of that journey. And we need to find ways of, of uh, lowering the threshold of interaction. So what we did is we introduced ways of users giving feedback to an article or a, or a comments just by clicking. They don't even have to log in. They can just click some predefined answer, for example, or some, some, some reaction if you want to. And what we try to is we try to nudge users along, uh, maybe giving a reply to a comment, which is also a lower threshold, and then eventually also writing their very first own comment that then gets replies and they are engaging in that discussion. So that's one thing. But I tell you something very interesting that we found out during our user interviews that we did. When we ask users who are very active on the site what they don't like about the site, then that's when they tell us they don't like that there are so many users who basically don't know anything about anything. And that really makes them turn away from the discussion because they don't feel they can get any value out of that discussion. But when we ask those same users, what's been the last time they actually commented on the website and tell us about like the comments that you, that you posted. Most of the time people tell us, yeah, there was some comment that I couldn't just let stand there. So I had users had the urge to respond to that comment. Users really had to say something about it because they felt it was misrepresenting some information or was maybe not misrepresenting another opinion that was not, not represented during that discussion. So the same thing becomes at the same time where we disengaging for some users, but at the same time, it's also what triggers them into, into action. That is a very interesting um, proposition from a product point of view, because of course we could probably surface a lot of comments that are outrageous for most of our users and see how many of them we can trigger into responding to that. But that's not really what we want to do. It's not what we think is a healthy discussion. But obviously there are serious comments that maybe are controversial. And we are experimenting at the moment with different kinds of personalized feeds that users look at and they get comments that are likely or more likely they are agreeing with, but also comments that they are more likely to find controversial, showing them a more broader spectrum of the whole conversation that's going on at the moment. And have you got any initial results from that work or are you still working on that now? Yeah, we're still working on that. So that's like a small prototype we've been running for a couple of weeks now. It's, um, yeah, it's still, still a lot of work, I guess. It's about how do we make this algorithm smarter? How do we surface more relevant comments for those users? How do we not make it toxic? Every time we tweak the algorithm, it does something sometimes unexpected, sometimes very interesting. And this is yeah, a playground for us at the moment. I bet you're having a lot of fun. If you look back over the, the last three or four years, if you con could condense some key advice to any peers that you might have in the DAC region, for example, or, or European news publishing, 
of what you have learned or your team has learned, it'd be good to, I guess, end on that note. Well, I guess it's different for all of us and everyone is like um, sailing in their own pond a little bit. But if I have to give advice, then it's maybe be adaptable. And before you go into action, define the problem first. And that's something very useful that we learned through the program that we did together with FT Strategies. Because the way we conducted the project, that was also very inspiring to us. Before we actually dove into any bit of data, we spend a lot of time defining the problem. What's actually the thing that we want to solve? What's actually something that would create value for some part in the organization? And we spend a lot of time interviewing people from the organization, discussing and narrowing down the problem proposition. And that's the point when we started digging into the data and asking very specific questions. And that's when the data and the analysis really surfaced the most interesting things to us. And building on that, we were then able to create and generate ideas of how we might solve problems that were surfaced during that analysis. And that's been very helpful to us, seeing how this works in action, how we can do that in a very short period of time. That was like a three-month program that we did together. And yeah, it's been very inspiring for us. We have adapted that process and we are running our own data and insights project at the moment internally. We've stolen the process basically and and uh, keep it going. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And looking ahead then, any notes of optimism that you wish to share, I guess, or level of excitement for the year ahead? Yeah, I've, I'm very excited about the year ahead, even though it's probably going to be difficult from an economic point of view. But uh, just speaking for the standard, we are very much set on our vision of building out our community platform offering more ways of, of users engaging with each other also besides our journalism. And yeah, I think that's going to be exciting for us and we'll be deep into execution for the next couple of months and seeing what we can do. Very exciting indeed. Florian Stambula, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. We will be back next week with another edition of the Turning Point podcast, exploring the critical moments news publishers have faced and the new direction they forged. Don't forget to subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on each new episode. You can find the links on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes, or of course, via the FT Strategies website. And for more strategies and tactics publishers and wider media are adopting to not just survive, but thrive, you can subscribe to the FT Strategies newsletter. Our executive producer was Hani Chakes. My name is Alan John. That was The Turning Point. This FT Strategies podcast was brought to you in association with the Google News Initiative, who work side by side with publishers and journalists to help strengthen their work in the digital age.